Hello and welcome to Eternal Dirtles. I'm your host, Zach Clark, and with me as always, Phil Blackman. Phil, how's it going, man? Zach, I am an idiot clown, and I need to go back <laughs> and learn how to actually play this game. Yeah. Uh, what, tell me, what are we doing? What are we doing today? How, how, well, we, how are we we're navigating? Gonna, we're going to start a little series here, uh, and and this is going to include a, a small reading assignment for the people uh, people at home, and we'll, we'll figure out ways to make this accessible. We're working right now. We're trying to find Charles Wolf and George H. Baxter so that they maybe that we can do an audio book version of this so people. Can check it out you can get this on amazon right now it's like six seven dollars but it's the book that got me into competitive magic this is deep magic advanced strategies for experienced magic the gathering players what's cool about this book is that this was sort of the first time i learned a lot of the like valuable lessons that we take for granted nowadays uh i think i think we want to approach this series as sort of you know pointing out some of the stuff that's very anachronistic that doesn't exactly hold up anymore and in a book like this that's over (laughs) almost 30 years old but at the same time there are some nuggets of wisdom here that I think that um, we can we can bring up and kind of discuss a little bit more for fully. So you don't necessarily have to have read the book with us. It just it'll just increase your enjoyment a little bit. I think it's a super easy read about something that we all enjoy. So the first chapter is four pages. We're just going to do the first chapter. Hopefully this this video does well. If it does, we'll keep doing this and and uh, you know it'll, it'll be fun. It'll be something that we do like uh, as like a weekly little extra thing that we we try and pull out when we can. I just want to point out like I, I started playing pre modern recently and the combination of cards and the way that they people were using them in the earlier days of magic and how they can inspire ideas today. An example was when I was trying to bring Parfait, which is a Lantac scroll rack deck into Legacy. Obviously, that combination is too slow. Like, it's it's been power crept out. But one thing that I learned from playing scroll rack in my main board, even though scroll rack itself was underpowered, the ability to sculpt your hand without drawing cards in a Bowmaster's Narset Holebreacher era was actually way more noticeably powerful. Being able to just sculpt my hand with impunity, not having to care about my opponent's Bowmasters or an R set that was on the table was way better than I thought it would be, even though it was still underpowered and inspired me to think of like, oh, are there ways that I can offset going down a card by going up a card? So examples were like, do I play a loam strategy that then can cycle those lands back on top? Loam then can mill the cards back and then you when you pick up the loam and then you go again and now we're just ancestraling every turn. And that's similar to what a one ring is doing, except it's not turned off by the you can't draw cards clause. I get that like it's a lot more hoops to jump through, but it, it garnered ideas that that I wouldn't have gotten to otherwise had I not gone back and thought, hey, this card is powerful in this context. Is there a way to update that with more powerful cards? That's kind of the, the point we're trying to make with this with this project is, is there's some value in looking at these old concepts, seeing what holds up and seeing, seeing you know what we can just throw out, right? About this book, this came out in copyright 1996. So I think I got this in the, on the Christmas of 1996. One of the really cool things about this book, so this is Ice Ages out at this point, is that they, go, in the back of the the book every card just every card that existed a list of cards sorted by card type we're not going to go over that oh, yeah. that's unnecessary we, but it, it, this we was the first ball. spreadsheet basically for you know this was it all the cards it gave you everything you needed and the, the nice little annotated uh index in the back that can look up card utility card economy and find where those things are listed in the in the book is card economy one concept that no longer exists in a meaningful context i, I think it definitely still exists actually card economy me the the ability to like use cards and glean be- 
benefits out of them. Let's take actually a look at the the exact the exact verbiage uh, used for to discuss card economy in in the book. We're not more than two paragraphs in, and the very first thing that I want to say before we talk about card economy, the very first lesson to be gleaned from this: if a format says you only need to play sixty cards, you should only play sixty cards. You shouldn't play more cards, which is something that I didn't know until I read this book in 1996. I was playing like 100 card monsters with like Leviathan and Polar Kraken. Just every blue card I owned in one deck. You got to get those quests for Ula's Temple, my guy. The concept that like you should play the minimum required amount of cards was something that you still had to tell people back in the day and we're recapping the basics so it's something to think about so card economy let's talk about card economy through the through the lens of deep magic right card economy essentially describes the expenditures and advantages gained by the ease of each card by the use of each card in a deck in other words good card economy is achieved when you glean numerous benefits out of a few cards. So the reason that I ask is, is yeah. card economy as a, a valuable aspect to dissect valuable at all because anymore? Because every card now is so powerful and begets a card. Looking at like, does this card get a card is no longer as valuable. It's it's not only does this card get a card, but also how does it disrupt my opponent? Every card that's good either is, you know, like the cantrips that filter for a card or meaningfully begets a card and also meaningfully disrupts your opponent simultaneously. Yeah. Unless well, combo let's, piece let's think about this through the lens of this book and then through the lens of now right the, in the lens of this book probably the most economical card of its day was balance balance mm-hmm. in type two balance in type one you cast balance if you're ahead you probably don't cast balance but if you're behind you cast balance you generally uh your opponent loses a bunch of cards in hand they lose all of their creatures probably because you're playing a you're playing a situation where you're behind right and if you have something like a zoran orb or something like that you can sacrifice all your lands and just reset the whole game you're up five or six you know six or seven in life or whatever from sacking lands the zorn orb your opponent has lost all of the resources their hand all their creatures and their land so that's that's the card economy we're talking about and if we were to take a card like balance which is not legal in legacy and port it to the now times right the card i would think that uh you would consider the most like economical of all the cards that that you play is terminus because it does well i agree in the context of like what the cards do which is simplifying the game state the the context in which balance and not to say that the value of card economy and the study of it isn't valuable. But the idea of if I terminus a board now, I am likely down cards. Let's say I sweep three or four creatures off my opponent's board with a single terminus. I'm still likely down a card because the terminus did not beget a card, but everything that they played likely did. They have all at least exchanged evenly for each card that they've played. So everything was a plus one. And though even though terminus in theory should have been a plus four or a plus three in that scenario, the terminus itself not cantripping or in some way uh, getting another resource means that I'm actually down a resource, which yeah. I think is part of why Terminus has lost value. Whereas like, if I had something like Balance these days, for those who have never played against a Balance, oh boy, it is an yeah. experience. What, what deck now would be the most dominant? Well, just just imagine deck? your opponent- Eight cast, right? Like, yeah, I, I think I think eight cast is probably the closest, yeah. All the Moxen? Yeah. The, the, the Moxen and the, the artifact, because it doesn't stack artifacts, so you can just go like Mox Diamond or Mox Opal or yeah. Lotus Petal or whatever, and just cast Balance. Mind twist your whole hand and get rid of your entire board. You got nothing and then you, when was the last time 
something you can't balance. It wasn't too long ago because I, you can play it as a as a singleton in vintage, and I was playing like a blue white red like was during Dreadhorde Arcanist, and you throw a balance into your into your deck if you're playing white because you know sometimes you top deck it in a situation where you're behind. Mind twisted your opponent and Wrath of God at the board. You know, balance is so 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 powerful. Of of all of the cards that you have played in the last X number of years, what card makes you feel the most powerful wizard you've ever been? Man, the most powerful I've ever felt. It's honestly, it's it's probably something from EDH. I'm trying to think of the deck that I like the, I like to play the most in EDH. And it's pro, like, it's so hard. So Zeptothal is is a mono green creature that like when, when you enter combat, it doubles the power of all of your creatures, I believe. that That's a really fun deck. It's been a minute since I played. Uh, at the beginning of each combat, double the power and toughness of each creature you control until end of turn. That's pretty powerful as far as like, you know, in a casual format, you know, it's a seven mana card, but you're playing Playing green and an EDH playing green means you're ramping. I think if I were to think about one card that felt like that, and and again, I'm gonna I'm gonna use the parlance of EDH uh, for this is actually Sauron the Dark Lord. Sauron the Dark Lord comes down. No one can really affect it on the board unless they wipe the entire board because you have three opponents. Every time someone casts a spell and people are often two and three spelling, all of a sudden you get back to your turn and you have like a 15-15 in play. Sword of the Dark Lord is a 7-6 that has ward. Opponent has to sacrifice a legendary creature or legendary artifact to target it at all, right? Then anytime someone casts a spell, you amass orcs one. Then if an orc does combat damage to a player, you get tempted by the ring. Then if you get tempted by the ring, you can discard your hand and draw four cards. That's a card especially like in in the ice age times is bunk to even think about but in in a situation like edh specifically having three opponents that card is just feels bonkers when you get back to your turn if no one's dealt with your orc army someone's someone's getting hit the most important thing to, in today's context for power level it can be your commander balance is just a wild card as far as co- a card economy because in the decks that played it it was it was mind twist armageddon and wrath of god all in one card for <laughs> two mana for two mana, which is uh, yeah. absurd. I think the most powerful aspect of any time I've ever cast a balance is probably the most powerful catch-up card ever. Yeah. No matter how far behind you are, balance can get the game back to parity or put you ahead. And I can't think of any card in modern times now that can swing a game back from being so far behind. Living end, maybe. <laughs> so few cards plague wind, you know? Like, plague wind is wh- where you want to be, but two mana wrath of wrath the board is is just wild and even if you're not wrathing the board let's say you're the mahatmi din jin deck right and your opponent has like six white weenie cards out right and you cast balance maybe you discard a couple of cards but now it's down to your opponent's white knight and your mahatmi jin you're doing you're doing pretty good and maybe you had to lose some lands you know but uh mm. to be able to wipe the board and keep your best threat that's pretty wild yeah i, I can't think of anything that is too analogous to it but i guess that's why you know it's banned and everything and restricted to vintage the other cool point point that they made was the concept of like fast mana which we talk mm-hmm. about a lot in in legacy right like fast mana is a very important part of legacy ancient tomb chrome mox you know what have you understanding that like establishing early dominance is a very important part of the game which we can certainly bring over to legacy now if you want to read that one point in the in, in the paragraph where they dissect getting your mana essentially like developing your mana as fast as possible that i think is not only analogous to today but is more important than it's ever been yeah. because of how powerful 
powerful all the cards are to just like snowball the game out of out of hand back then they equated you know dark ritual and wild growth yeah. yes those cards both get you you know are represent re- representative of fast mana one is not like the other anymore yeah. you know so yeah so uh that that uh sentence is the difference between being able to influence the game in the first two turns is typically the telling factor since the ramifications of actions taken in early turns will have a greater impact later in the game that we can bring over legacy that's great that's great like we all know that it's a perfect like upon entering entering the game upon entering the format learning that was huge and i think for me the thing the thing that i didn't understand even even after reading this like 15 16 when i when i got this book even when reading this thing i didn't understand was that like a mox emerald is not just a 90 dollar forest you know 90 dollars at the time <laughs> obviously much more expensive now I couldn't fathom a reason why i would want a mock a mox emerald in my deck when i could just add another forest i've heard the story of like oh yeah mox emerald it's just the forest and people would you know trade their mox their mox in for like lord of the pits or whatever back yeah. in the day but like the context of which the fast mana mattered is so much different from then to now so like it's not like everybody was an idiot back then no. it's that the stuff that Just you were me. turboing out, <laughs> the stuff that people would turbo out with the Moxin was so much more tame that yeah. now anything that's turboed wins by itself. Yeah. But back then, like there, there was no like auto win fast thing to do on, you know, for two or three mana. You know, it's like you had some cards that were objectively busted, but so like Necropotence, but like yeah. that was off land dark ritual. You didn't need the Moxin for that, you know? And if you did, like only Mox Jet helped you get there. I've heard that story a, a bunch where people just like didn't recognize the value of Moxin. And I don't think that it's not like, like the, the Moxin weren't valuable. It's that the context in which the po- their power level was significantly decreased because the stuff that they were per- they were powering out was infinitely more tame. Now every single card is a banger. The-, the worlds we live in are just very different in terms of like how powerful fast mana is. And we'll get to that spot when we talk about the concept of the fast creature deck because they have two different versions of it: the small fast mm-hmm. creature deck and the large fast creature deck. The concept that like of what those what those analogous decks are now is vastly different than what they are they are in here. Um, but uh, that that brings us to the next part of the the book is challenging the five basic decks which to me is an interesting way to title that like subchapter challenging the five basic decks is basically telling you to put a battle box together the the authors are saying the there are five decks that you need to be able to play against and you have to have a plan against in order to uh achieve victory the way that that's analogous to modern times and and when we go through the five decks you'll probably be like well this is ridiculous like these none of this stuff exists anymore and it doesn't however what does exist is the pillars of the format when they were saying the the five types of deck that you have to prepare for it's it's really analogous to when when thinking of like what you're playing is how you're navigating either your deck has a specific problem a la zach on a cast needs to be able to deal with meltdown or your deck needs to be able to have a plan against the other pillars of the format based on what you deem to be the ones that are worth respecting i think one of some of the some of the really interesting stuff in here is actually the stuff that we can't carry over for example there are five different kinds of decks we have the fast creature deck the burn deck the hand destruction deck, land destruction deck, and the counter spell deck. This is pre-combo. Combo decks didn't exist then. That happened in Mirage when we got our first like real combo deck, you know, because otherwise it's you know Channel Fireball was the first real combo deck. Yeah. That, what, <laughs> what's what's the what's the first actual combo combo deck? That, like, uh, that would actually, be Connector's like, Bloom. It's Cad Bloom, right? Yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. I'm just I literally just like I'm trying to assemble these pieces and the game ends. Yeah. If you if you looked at Cadaver's Bloom as as a person that would have been for me like I would have been 16 or 17 when that. Deck came out i would have looked at that deck 
without being to- without knowing any of the knowledge I have currently, I could not have told you what what the person was trying to do with what it. Did. I, yeah. I, I would have been yeah. like, I guess they're just going to try and put enough lands into play that they're going to hit for a four man a four land drain life because I can't understand. I could. The, there's no way I could understand what was happening. Anybody who wants a little trip down memory lane, she'll feel something. Look at any of the old formats. That a good example that I'm thinking of in particular is pre modern. I was looking at various decks for pre modern, and I saw a doomsday deck for pre modern. I this. love this deck. It had four I, future. I'm, I'm I'm literally looking. It's it's obviously four doomsday, four dark writ, like whatever cantrips you can yep. get, and Mox, then lotus petals and stuff. Yeah, LED, couple like, eggs, all all, <laughs> all of the, the the suspects that you think would be in your combo deck. Yep. But then the other cards that it had were future sight, four x future sight. I, I'm like looking at the deck and I'm trying to figure out how does it win because how does it Oracle win? doesn't exist. Yep. It's not trying to combo with the tendrils. I'm like looking for the win condition. And having played long enough, I recognize the win con has to be one of the cards that I don't know. One of the cards was one ebony charm yep. and i'm like i have no idea what ebony charm does <laughs> but i do know that it's how this deck kills somebody yeah. so i looked it up one of the three modes on ebony charm target opponent loses one life and you gain one life yep and so the way that the deck actually kills is you would have a future sight and play in doomsday with a bunch of leds and then you would cycle everything back into your deck cast the leds off the top Everything's off the top of the deck, yeah. That would give you enough. That would give you enough black mana, so you would cast an ebony charm, gain a life, and drain your opponent for one, which would make, sh- which would ensure that you have at least two life to then doomsday again with yep. a second doomsday <laughs> to flip all those cards right back in and then just continue that loop at uh, forever. And I was yeah. like, if that doesn't bring a smile to your face, that that's how the deck wins. We, we we've lost the thread if that doesn't bring you joy. So let's talk about the the five different decks they uh, bring up, right? So first, there's the fast creature deck, and uh, first these decks, uh, perhaps the most common, is the fast creature deck there are two kinds of fast creature decks there is the small fast creature deck so that's like white weenie which we could equate to people from 1996 would view death and taxes it's not how we view death and taxes for sure i, I don't think that in legacy there is a fast a fast creature deck because no there's nothing really analogous to that in my mind however in the younger formats i think there definitely is every standard format has a red deck wins right right so i mean that's that's, 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 that's where you're endured yeah yeah so there's the fast creature deck that's small and then there's the fast creature deck that's big and that was back in the day that was turn one soul ring and, and turn to uh surrender free or turn to uh earn Jin, or like if you were a mm-hmm. real baller maybe you owned a mox and you were like turn one earn him gin off of like a mox and a mana vault big big deal getting off like a turn two like four five something over lightning bolt range was always the mm-hmm. plan that was the like big fast creature deck the equivalent for legacy now would be a show and tell deck where like that that is the concept right you're I cheating mean, you're cheating on mana to get a thing i guess show and tell could exist in that space i always think of show and tell as like a combo as opposed to a, a big aggro deck because the second that you go off you've effectively won but like i i think that there might be a new a new space for that you know a deck that we covered recently which is the field stompy deck playing patchwork automaton i think we covered it what two weeks ago it was a forex patchwork deck lodestone golem and and that type type of deal i think that's probably the most the most prominent recent type of deck that's actually trying to put really thick creatures and bring the beatdowns yeah as opposed to like an, an i win button in the deck like it doesn't have an i win button in the deck it has some amount of destruction and very thick creatures and it just tries to get you dead the way that it wins is actually getting your life total to zero the funny thing uh so before we were mentioning about how like getting down like a big creature like that was was a big deal but the thing that i wanted to bring up is how often you turn to an urnum gin and it's immediately followed up with a sorts of plowshares and then you're just sitting there yeah. taking one damage for the next like four or five turns from a mana vault so there's a huge liability in in this strategy although it was insanely popular there's a deck called urnum burnum at the time mm-hmm. that was basically just like slam an urnum gin 
cast lightning bolt and incinerate at your opponent and like get the game over. It even played yeah, like yeah, fireball yeah. or something like that, I think. Classic story about Source of Plowshares. One time a friend of mine, he was playing Miracles back in the old Loon days and his opponent cast a Marin of Clan Nell Toth yeah. against him. And this is back when, you know, Commander product was still relatively in the early days of Watsi dedicating cards to it. Marin has experience counters and does a bunch of stuff and it's like very clearly intended for four player, whatever. Uh, his opponent casts it and he goes, I don't know what that does. What does that do? And his opponent gets really, really excited to explain <laughs> what Marin of Clan Neltoth does. Right as the opponent is about to like go into like all this, this wonderful excitement about what this card does and like it's so great. And my buddy goes, yeah, whatever, dude, just swords it. Swords. And he swords it. And that was <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I don't have any time and, for that. <laughs> that the, the best embodiment of swords to plowshares that I can, yeah. it's like, whatever, dude, just swords it. Yeah. Speaking of walls of text, Ernum, Ernum Jin is a wall of text as well. That was a card mm. that uh, before reading this book and really like rocking before like the the magic worlds pro tour on espn which i have a copy of on on vhs that i need to get like changed that would be a fun thing for us to do one day is to like just commentate over that before i understood the concept that like paying life for cards is fine that was something i didn't understand as, as a as a kid and and like a classic example of that the story everyone's heard inquest magazine rated necropotence as the worst card in ice age people just yeah. didn't think that and like paying life for cards was a good idea again that's also i think contextually that sounds idiotic now yeah. but back then that's something that is even d- discussed in pre-modern to this day where the card pool is fixed they're, they're, right now necropotence is on the ban list in pre-modern right where the yes. card pool does not change it is a fixed set of cards but there's the argument that if it came off it wouldn't necessarily be that dangerous because there isn't really a way to kill right yeah, like, no there's you not can like play it Draw 14 cards but then there, yeah there isn't there, there isn't cards within the pool of cards available to construct nowadays obviously if you can necro and just draw 14 the game just is going to end the second yeah. you untap why would you not be able to kill your opponent if you have access to that many cards when the card pool back then when necro was actually released not necessarily like there isn't it's not obvious what what that yeah. kill would look like it's like what you were talking about with the cab bloom it's like if you think about cab bloom now like try try and make a cab bloom now back then it killed on what like turn six turn seven maybe turn you, five you could do turn three if you were lucky if you were lucky yeah if you, if you have the if you have the nutter butter god draw yeah. and your opponent doesn't interact with you yeah at all you literally you have maybe to go like three. land pass squatter resources pass and then like cadaverous bloom coping that you literally drew an island of swamp and a forest you have that one mana left you pitch your whole hand and you pray to god that if you have a natural balance that like you can get blue mana again to like do the thing you need to do right like because you're you need more than one and, prosperity to like get there and even back then that means that your opponent didn't duress you didn't have a counter spell up didn't have some sort of disenchant effect all of the things have yeah. to go right in that context right now there are decks that will just kill you on one of course there but. were one turn kill decks in in vintage at the time type one eternal dirtles is proud to be sponsored by moxfield moxfield is the best magic the gathering deck building website on the internet you can create share and find decks from commander to legacy and even fan supported formats like pre-modern and old school you can see all of our decks on our moxfield follow the links below to stay tuned at the time but you know mm-hmm. that was channel and fireball like you had to li- literally have those two cards in your in your opener going back to the Ernum Jin thing 
is the, the the wall of text is like the concept that like a card had a drawback on it and then was still very good was not something mm-hmm. I completely understood. I remember asking somebody at my LGS like who was trading them from me because they were in Chronicles. I was like, why does everybody want this card? It doesn't seem that good. It's you know like it's a four mana four five that like your opponent gets to swing through with something. You're obviously going to be playing Forest. And when they explained to me like you know normally you get to choose what the thing is and so normally you give it to like a Birds of Paradise or something like that or mm-hmm. or maybe you're not playing Forest. Maybe you played a City of Brass to get that out, so the, the drawback's unnecessary. Or you're not blocking with Urnumjin, you're attacking. So, like, it didn't matter that they, they got Forest Walk, you know? Those concepts were completely foreign to me at the time, and I think they were foreign to a lot of people who were, were reading this book at the same time, too. I almost feel mm-hmm. like uh, there's this great 18th century uh, YouTube channel called The Townsends, where the guy, uh, the, the whole thing is savoring the flavors of aroma of the 18th century, right? Going back to the 1700s and uh, talking about, like, making apple pie and stuff. And a lot of the things he does mm. is like he takes like recipe books from back in the day and then talks about them and says like, oh, oh, this was the, this is what these people were thinking at the time. And I kind of feel like that this where I feel like getting into the mind of a player in 1996, we would dominate it, it. Like with what we know now, we would dominate in 1996. Deck building has like evolved beyond what they were even thinking in, in, in a book like this. A hot, you know, like this is a hot, this was high concept at the time. Uh, and this was only three oh, years yeah, after and, the game came out. Stuff has evolved, but you know, it, all the stuff that it, that it evolved from, it's standing on the shoulders of giants for exactly. sure. I mean, last 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 episode when we were talking to Legacy Gambit, we were talking about the sort of things that you can learn from studying chess and how yeah. that how that can apply to That's magic. That's exactly where like, we, yeah, if, you if, know, if, came if, up with this. Yeah, it's like if you were a competitive chess player and you were studying games that took place in the, you know, 70s and 80s, yeah, back then they didn't have like Stockfish or other, you know, supercomputers that were able to analyze, you know, openings as well. Yeah, maybe stuff back then, it looks amateurish to something that nowadays, you never got to where we got nowadays if it wasn't the developments that came along the way. This stuff seems elementary now, but... It can still be informative, particularly if sort of lost in your deck building or or, or something is you, you feel like there's a sticking point that you're not able to break through. It's nice to go back to the basics to remember being like, what am I overlooking? What am I not thinking? Am I getting too in the weeds? Yeah. You know, sometimes simplifying is actually the way to go. Uh, I won't spend too much time on this, but the second deck you should be prepared to face is a burn deck. At the mm. time, Phil, a burn deck in type one, because there was no legacy, uh, right? was Chain Lightning, Lightning Bolt, and then, like, you kind of had to start looking at weird cards. Like, you incinerate, sure, but then it's like, okay, like, do I play Inferno? Ball Lightning, uh, bro. Ball Lightning, ball of lightning. course. You know, like, the concept of Sly, the concept of a mana curve did not exist yet. Not like it does now. The mm-hmm. Sly deck that made waves in the Pro Tour was written, came out the same year this book came out. The concept of a literal mana curve did not exist. That's something that like you have to take into account when, when we even talk about a burn deck because there just weren't like, Lava Spike didn't exist, right? Like there weren't a lot of great spells to choose to, to be considered a burn whoa, deck. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue with your insinuation that Lava Spike is a good spell. You're 100% correct. But like the next the, sucks. The next spell that they would have probably been using would have been like Psionic Blast. That Psionic Blast kills a Sarah Angel, which was which was a big a big deal, right? So But also Psionic Blast is sweet. Psionic Blast Lava is Spike rad. sucks. You know, actually, one of the funny things, and we'll talk about this because now we're on to the third deck type, which is hand destruction. You know what I'm thinking of? Oh man, you know what Psionic Blast does? Psionic Blast kills fucking Minsk on the stack, bro. 
So does Lightning Bolt. Or not on the stack, with the trigger on the stack. <laughs> bro, bro, Lava Spike doesn't, though. No. So Lava Spike doesn't next, do that. Lava Spike sucks. The third deck type that you'll need to worry about is Hand Destruction. One of the cool things about this is that they talk about the popularity of this deck has increased recently because of the new edition of Fallen Empires and the card Him to Torak. Even though Hand Destruction is a weird way to put a discard deck, you actually do have to be prepared for that now because Grief Reanimate exists. Grief, yeah, the, the scam decks, right? But the other... The other funny the scam, part the scam of, decks are the discard decks. The the funny part of this uh, thing is is then they talk about these decks are, are are some of the most powerful, right? However, they suffer against Psychic Purge. Psychic Purge. Do you know what Psychic Purge is? Psychic Purge is a Can't one blue mana spell that does one damage mm-hmm. to uh, target any, any target. I, but if it's discard, mm-hmm. it does five damage. So it's like the OG oh, Gruel yeah. tactics, right? That was the first card that like gave you some sort of play against a discard deck. So that's really funny. Unfortunately, Psychic Purge is not available in Type 2, so it's a very powerful deck. And that's the backbone of Necropotence was actually, like, playing, like, Pump Knights and Black Knight, like, playing Order of the Ammon Hand and Order Knight of Stromgold and uh, little, you know, like, weenie creatures, right? Backing it up with Necropotence to refill your hand and casting stuff like Him to Torok, Ice Quake, Sinkhole. You know, mm-hmm. stuff like that to try and, like, get your opponent to to just be low on resources. I guess technically the Necropotence deck of the day was kind of like a mix of small, fast creature, land destruction, and hand disruption. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, like the early Delver, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I th- I th- you just made me think of another concept uh, for the card economy and how it has sort of evolved in the way that I was thinking about card economy. I remember for a long time, anytime there was a card that let you sort of exchange cards for other cards, a good example of that nowadays would be something like Dak Faden, right? Sure. Where it's like, yeah, I draw two, discard two. And if there was any way that you could recoup any amount of just raw cardboard, that it would then be converted into more resources or higher value resources. Things like Life from the Loam or Squee Goblin Nabob. Something along the lines of like a Squee in modern day legacy is laughably underpowered. Even though it's effectively you draw a card every turn because it comes yeah. back into your hand out of your graveyard that you could then use to convert into other cards. The card economy now is the opportunity cost of a card in your deck. There is a card like that in this era of, of Magic. And that card is Brain Geyser. You played yeah. Brain Geyser yeah. to recoup a bunch of cards. It does. It's doing the same thing as as Squee is basically. But it, you know, you had to worry about counter spells and stuff. If you were going that long in the game, you were probably playing against a counter spell deck as well. So you had to be very uh, cognizant of that. And and it's it's played in the old school format when you get to Brain Brain Geyser for like five or six feels super powerful. And and the game is almost always over if it resolves. All right. So the last two basic deck types are Land Destruction and the Counterspell deck. So Land Destruction's ability to prevent opponents from developing their deck tends to allow its controller time to front an unopposed def- offense. So, you know, something we see in, like, the, the low-resource decks, like t- the Tempo-style decks, like Delver and stuff like that, uh, where you can mana denial, yeah. just mana denial your opponent out of the game and be like, you know, like I think Sarah said last week, like, my 1-2 mana game is better than your 1-2 mana game, right? During this, you had Strip Mine, and then you had, like, Stone Rain, Sinkhole, Ice Storm, that was all like in type one and in type two you had like thermocarst and icequake were your other options mm-hmm. there was a very common effect but then the last type of, of deck and the one that like i think i think is the most worth talking about because it, it it exists but not in the way that it did then is the counterspell deck basically they're just the counterspell deck is talks about you have to have an early presence of d- defense and then like at the end of the game you're just unstoppable because you're able to just stop your opponent from doing whatever the whatever they want to do after you've stabilized obviously and so what it says about counterspell decks is these decks rely upon stopping you from casting spells basically on a one-for-one card basis obviously wouldn't play 
very well. Now, and although these decks are extremely powerful, they're typically limited in removal once a card has been cast and uncountered. Once you've used up your sorts of plowshares, right? If they play another creature and you didn't counter it, it's there until you cast Wrath of God, you know? Like, so you had to, and, and that's the way things still are, I suppose. We were very limited in the amount of removal that we had during this time because most, most control decks, most counterspell decks were blue and white. You were playing Swords of Plowshares, you're playing some number of Wrath of Gods, and generally your finisher was Mahatmi Jin or like Air Elemental. There wasn't the concept of like Landstill, like playing Mishra's Factory for like the win, so you didn't have to worry mm-hmm. about your opponent's creature removal until you were set up. Really didn't exist so much as like that was just another card that was thrown into. It was either an early blocker uh, that you threw in in more limited formats like Type 2, or it was a, a card that insulated you against Wrath of God in your fast, like small mm-hmm. creature decks. So that's that's the first chapter. The second chapter is deck construction. So if you if you want to follow along with us, we're going to try and do this somewhat weekly. But if you want to mm-hmm. follow along with us, I'll link the Amazon page for this. Like I said, we're trying to reach out. And if you know how to get in touch with these guys, uh, this is uh, Charles Wolf and George H. Baxter. If you know how to get in touch with these guys, please help us out. Because we would like to do an audio book of this so that we can make it just much more accessible for everybody to to follow along. And I, I think it'll be fun to, to go over like what magic was like in 1996 and see what we can take away yeah. you know see if we can take away uh stra- strategy wise uh from, from that time yeah we talk a lot of theory on this podcast and i think that i would assume that the majority of our listeners are like us as students of the game and can really appreciate how all of the stuff that we talk about how it was developed in the early days and how it's evolved over time yeah there's stuff that like it can sort of remind you of to like spawn new ideas is is really prevalent when we had this idea of starting this sort of series the early concepts and then going back and playing older formats it really is like re-enlightening it's concepts that you know but it's like if you haven't thought about them in a long time in a meaningful way it can it can sort of bring back a lot of things to the forefront of your mind yeah. that it inspires certain card choices or certain play patterns that you may not have thought of in a long time that might be fruitful you like studying the history it'll be a fun series there'll be plenty of boomer magic talk of course and, and i think the other interesting part of this is not just like the nostalgia and the the strategy it's looking at this and seeing what doesn't work anymore. There are a lot of concepts mm-hmm. in this book. There's there's a spot where they talk about building a mana base where they're like 30, 30% of your your card should be land. It's like, that's not a thing anymore. That's not how we build decks that's not that uh, at all because of just how deck construction has changed over time you know sometimes it's way more sometimes it's way less it just depends on the kind of deck that you're building depends on the format obviously uh there's a lot of really cool old stuff in here there's also like i love when we get into the decks the decks is going to be the funnest mm-hmm. part because the black sea it's a dis- a discard deck and a counterspell deck you know like i think it plays the earliest stage of what does your deck do yeah yeah, this, yeah is, man. this is that yeah masonette's amish deck you know like there's there's a lot of cool stuff. There's only about 15 chapters, which is not a ton of reading, and then it just goes into decks. And the fun part is going to be when we start talking about the decks, and that is a larger bulk of this. But I think that that's mm-hmm. a cool place to check out. And if you're an old school or pre-modern fan, there's a lot of cool stuff in here for you. So if you get a chance, pick up a book. We'll, uh, I'll try and like get a Amazon link for that. It was like eight bucks. We'll try and reach out to the authors and get get some permission to do an audiobook for it. And uh, that does it for us this week. Thanks everyone for watching. If you could like and subscribe this video, that'll t- tell us that this is something you want us to keep doing. And that does it for us. Have a good week, everybody. What up, it's there's a new queen in this game. She go by the name. 
Miracle trigger on the stack and casting it. Just like time St. Catherine's happening. Five, 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 blink, think I flashed it in. Trying the truth, we both voracious. Oops, my B, I'm voracious. Honestly, my dexpedacious. My miracles are so salacious. Get your heart in public, ostentatious. 40K, that's Warhammer. In the church of force of fill the clamor for his necklace. Cause they're so enamored. Cause it mashes like the Brits of bangers. I correctly cast predict a plan to kind of balance all your tricks you jam. Determine this, your boy, your lands are stranded. I'll throw your face and then I'll snap a candid. Presidium protectiva. That's St. Catherine's flavor feature. Shuffle six cards right underneath her. She's Ethereum. I'm Tez the Seeker. I'm Botticelli. She's Primavera. I'm Manetius for Libra I'm Renoir. She's Grenadilla. I'm Matisse's Bernal de Vivre. I'm Goya. She's Tormachia. I'm Van Gogh. She's Mona Lisa. I'm Rembrandt. She's the Thandavera. I'm Dukes on Twitch. She's the Pain Slayer. Warhammer. Those were art bars. Like an artist, I draw cards. Illustrator. I'm illustrious. I'm a writer. Here's a plot twist. Miracle St. Catherine. Like a javelin to the abdomen. In the top sedan. She's a deadly sin. She'll string you out like a violin. She's sticky like a goblin on the battlefield. She's residing in. No denying it or defying it. Time to resign the game and sign the slip. She'll beat you down with a cape and shield. She'll steal your life and then make you feel so sad and lonely and so defeated. You'll beg for mercy. Wish you'd concede it, but you had your chance. That's in the past. This game was over when it came to pass. Your fate was sealed right from the start when I miracle this work of art. Miracle St. Catherine. By design, she's so sublime. Turning water into wine. She overhauled the archetype. Haters try to deny the hype, but Triumph shrugs it off like she's gripped tonight. And you're Superman with your stupid plan. She'll make you resign like you're Vince McMahon. She'll make you tap with a sharpshooter. Best there was, best there is. While you're a loser, rock bottom you. Straight through the basement, she'll stone cold stun you to your grave. Since she's MTG's new undertaker. Tombstone you, that's a neck breaker. Triumph's the truth is an understatement. She saw the flare. It's second nature. She's Triple H. She's taking over. She's Dean Malenko with the four leaf clover. She's bold, weird, intimidator. And you're a coward who can't block her either. She's future sight. Unprecedented, you can call her Garrett cause she's relentless, she'll break your teeth, send you to the dentist, you're a partisan, she's an independent. A triumph is a funeral, a procession so beautiful, a lingo's a little unusual, but I'll still outplay you inscrutable. Magic, the gathering is not magic, St. Catherine, the red zones, a labyrinth for your creatures, inadequate. Miracle St. Catherine, like a javelin to the abdomen and the top sedan. She's a deadly sin, she'll string you out like a violin. She's sticky like a goblin on the battlefield. She's residing in, no denying it or defying it. Time to resign the game and sign the slip. She'll beat you down with a cape and shield. She'll steal your life and then make you feel so sad and lonely and so defeated. You'll beg for mercy, wish you'd conceded, but you had your chance. That's in the past. This game was over when it came to pass. Your fate was sealed right from the start when I miracled this work of art. There's a new queen in this game. See you by the name. What it do?